Policy Podcast. I'm Corbin Barthel, Internet Policy Counsel at Tech Freedom. Martin Gurry is here. He's been called the man who saw it coming. Martin is a former CIA analyst specializing in the relationship of politics and global media. His book, The Revolt of the Public and the Crisis of Authority in the New Millennium, first published in 2014 and updated in 2018, has been praised for foreshadowing the political shocks of Brexit and the rise of Donald Trump. He is a visiting research fellow at the Mercatus Center. Martin, it is so great to have you here. I'm happy to be here with you, Corbin. Well, I read your book a few months ago, and it is one of those books, uh, and I don't say this about many, that I think about all the time. Um, and I really do recommend to our listeners, if, if they want to understand what's going on in the world today, uh, there is no better place to start than the revolt of the public. Uh, why don't we dive in sort of at the, at the early part of your book, which you know, you go into the past and say something that now seems almost quaint, that there was a debate over the real world effect of social media at one point. Right. You mentioned, uh, you know, at one time, Malcolm Gladwell was sort of skeptical that social media could have a, a real world impact. I think it's fair to say that debate is over. Uh, what happens on the platforms can clearly have a real world effect. You discuss uh, Tahrir Square and the Arab Spring as one example um, another in America um, that now seems like such distant history is, is the Comet Ping Pong Pizza incident. Um, and now, of course, what's on everyone's minds is the, the riot at the Capitol. So I think if there's one thing we've learned, at least recently, um, it's that the, the side effects, like the warning labels, you know, this claim about election fraud is disputed on Facebook or whatnot probably is not having much of an impact. And my first question for you is, you know, you talk a lot about the hierarchy and elites versus the public. Mm -hmm. Can elites have much influence on people? And I, you know, I don't mean uh, suppressive techniques, deplatforming. I mean, actually getting the public to have the views that the hierarchy seeks to uh, put on them. Well, my question is, how do you influence? I would, I, would, I would ask you that right back. What is influence? How do I know? How, suppose I wanted to influence you. Um, how would I go about that? Uh, if I have a TV show, I can say things that you might accept or reject. But the whole science of influence is very complex, very difficult. I'm not sure that we were ever influenced by the elites. It's just that we couldn't talk back. Right. So in the old days, we had these these um, elite figures. Some of them were politicians, presidents or whatnot. Some of them were uh, anchormen that were supposed to be wildly trusted, like like uh, Walter Cronkite. And they talked at us. And, well, we had no alternatives. There was nobody else or, or no other source of information. Um, but I'm not sure we were influenced so much as we were just stuck in this little puddle of, of low information uh, uh, society, right? Once that gets blown away, um, it's impossible to get it back. It's impossible to get back to that moment. And the idea of taking little stories or even little platforms like Parler uh, and saying, now we're going to get it back by getting rid of these people. It's a little bit like picking up a grain of sand and saying, oh, I got the beach. You know, I mean, it just doesn't work like that. You know, it, you, you are dealing with this enormous amount of information. It's, it's 
the structure that matters. It's not any given piece of content that matters. It's the structure that is setting the tone. So th these folks are, of course, the elites are trained in 20th century ways of thinking, and they haven't quite evolved into our actual moment in history yet. And so they think, as the 20th century did, in terms of content of a story in the New York Times, for example, uh, and that the story is important or the story is outrageous. It must be, you know, Counter, counteract it or something. But that is not what's going on here. It's not about a piece of content. It's about the structure of information being completely revolutionized. And no, they can't get it back. You're making me picture if Walter Cronkite had had a comment section as he was speaking. That's a really interesting thought. Um, well, to try and push back, even though I find that convincing, um, you know, if, if you read the pages of The Atlantic or whatever, uh, there's, it's almost conventional wisdom at this point that the major platforms like Facebook and Twitter um, pushed extremist content and inflammatory content through, you know, they algorithmically promoted it and that they share responsibility for some of the, the events like the riot at the Capitol. Um, there's a lot of debate about, oh, well, you know, this didn't really happen on Parler, it happened on Facebook or, you know, that goes back and forth. And certainly Facebook has a lot of users and is, is uh, currently occupies a central position. So are you saying that even a major platform that's used by, I forget the exact number, I think like 80% of billions on exactly. Facebook, um, they change their algorithms. They de-promote things. I mean, doesn't that have some kind of impact? Don't they have some control over this? Impact, yes. Control, no. No. Hey, Parler found a server out in Russia somewhere, as I understand it, and they were up and flying, right? So it's too big. It's too big for Google. It's too big for Facebook. And those two things are, are, are gigantic. And that's 100% true. But given the size of the web, it's too big for them. So no, I don't think, I don't think that's, that's the case. And, and, and um, you know, when you say it's extremist, it favors extremist uh, and it's an anti-democratic um, uh, rhetoric. I mean, uh, dictators have been overthrown in Egypt and Algeria and uh, Sudan and Bolivia by people who were using all these um, platforms, right? So thinking at it in terms of uh, extremist or, or anti-democratic is probably too narrow. The, the, the crisis is not a crisis of, of democracy, but of authority. And I, and I, and I think basically the, the structures of authority in our, um, in, our, in our moment in time right now, we have inherited from the 20th century and are, are just wildly maladapted to our informational landscape. So this collision between the institutional structure and the informational landscape. And sometimes it hurts democracy because we are a democracy. Sometimes it topples a dictator because that's where you are, right? So if you're Hosni Mubarak, you probably don't think of uh, Facebook as being something that um, that is extreme in the sense of you know helping helping uh, bad actors. You just think of it as you know I, I'm a dictator and this is a, a way of getting around me. Well, one thing I should maybe uh, explain for our viewers: you use the term fifth wave, which I yeah. like, um, and you mean that to connect to previous waves of information. Um, I believe the first one you start with is Gutenberg and then you move forward. I sort of think of that, uh, another term I've heard is liquid modernity. 
Uh, and I think those are really powerful concepts that you're, you're connecting to that people in places of authority don't really grapple with, or uh, I, I, I might even go so far as to say they don't see it. Um, so when you see their attempt to respond, I mean, I, I have different buckets that I try to put the elite response to. I, I kind of elite, we'll get to this of what does that even mean? But um, <clears throat> one way I think of it is this is just a futile exercise of, of anger. You know, how dare people share Breitbart links on Facebook instead of listening to me. Um, another one is that they are, they are fighting a fragmentation of reality. They're trying to do what you're saying is futile and create this new unified, you know, I, I wanna be Walter Cronkite again. And actually it seems like, as you mentioned, it, it's just gonna continue to go in the other direction. We might even see the blockchaining of social media where, you know, not even Twitter and Facebook have control over this kind of stuff anymore. Um, it, are, are those lenses, am I, does that make sense? I mean, what's your read on the situation? Well, I mean, here's the question, all right? Part of what I think is, is um, wrong about the way we approach this, this, this whole issue of, of the informational transformation is that we seem to have very narrow time timelines on it. So we're looking at today. Of course, the thing about this informational landscape is that it throws crap at you at immense levels every day. So every day it's a crisis. Every day is the end of the world. Every day, it, it, you know, something horrible is happening. Every day you have to respond, right? But it really would be good to take a deep breath and step back. And I think we're at the very, very early stages of, of, of this colossal transformation from the old 20th century industrial model of organizing humanity, which was very top down, very, I talk, you listen, uh, to something that honestly doesn't even have a name yet. It's a long march to question mark. We don't really know, right? Um, so um, all the, the elites are still stuck in the past. Uh, that's kind of regretful, although understandable. It was much more comfortable to be an elite in the 20th century when nobody talked back than uh, it is today when everybody not only talks back, but screams back on just about every question, right? So everybody wants the elites, as you say, they, they want to somehow browbeat uh, social media into being the front page of the New York Times circa, say, 1980. That was just so comfy, right? Um, and they deal in, in stories and in, 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 in little uh, bits of content. But I, I repeat, this is not about any single piece of content. This is about a tremendous structural change that basically our institutions are unable to cope with. So um, I, don't, I don't see the elites being able to do anything until uh, A, the institutions are reconfigured and B, honestly, we get ourselves a new elite class. So one of the fascinating things as I read your book and look out at the world, um, and, and the, you see this joke made often on Twitter where very online people, to use the cliche, think the world is just completely on fire. Yeah. And then people, you know, I walk around my neighborhood in the suburbs and talk to my neighbors and, and normal people, which is like not you or me or people on, you know, who are on Twitter, uh, don't you know, have a very different view of the world. And a lot of their life is going on as normal. Um, 
And I have a hard time reconciling that in my own mind, as I, I suppose being a very online person myself, um, you know, in a lot of ways we look out at the world and things look fine. I mean, uh, talk of a bubble aside, you know, markets seem okay. Uh, tech, we're clearly just uh, still innovating. Um, the vaccine development was amazing, even if the deployment has been so-so. Um, and so I, I know that you do not predict the future and you are not a prophet, and yet I'm going to try and press you a bit anyway. I mean, is the fifth wave a surface level phenomenon where we're going to be disgruntled and nihilistic and kind of have no unifying worldview and, and there's a certain amount of anime and, and maybe loss of meaning, but we're fine. Everything's good. We're, you know, comparatively rich and we continue to see uh, global poverty decline and all that good stuff. Um, or is this really capable of sparking like a major collapse or, you know, a, a kind of long drawn out, stagnated, brutal conflict like the 30 years war? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, and I don't have the answer. Um, I, I agree with you. I, I am at present engaged in this one of these exercises where you write something and the other person writes something and you're kind of debating with one another. And, and the person that I'm debating with was talking about a, we're in a cold civil war, our politics are warlike. And as I'm reading this, you know, you can't see, but if I, if you look right directly to where I'm staring at, that's my window. And I'm watching my neighbors kind of amble around and, and social distance and wave at each other. And I'm going like, well, that's the weirdest civil war I have ever seen. <laughs> Okay, yeah. uh, so I 100% agree with you that that we need to, um, and, and I think honestly, doing that, being that kind of um, hysterical is it's an element of self fulfillment in it. This is the way I see it. I don't know if you have ever been. Well, first of all, it's not a surface level event. This is tectonic. This is in the depth. The change is a tectonic collision. All right, and. Um, the pressure from below is everywhere at all times, and you just never know um, what random and unpredictable factors are going to bring it to the surface, right? Like um, Wall Street bets. I mean, who would have predicted that one? Um, I don't know if you've ever been to uh, the Bay of Naples. Have you ever been there? Nope. I went to Rome on my honeymoon. Okay. That's it. Uh, I mean, Italy everywhere is wonderful, but the Bay of Naples is special, all right? And the reason I bring it up is it's this gorgeous place and everybody goes around their business and everything is totally normal. And they're sitting on this caldera that not only has Vesuvius in it that blows up and kills people every you know 20 years or so, but every once in a while some mini volcanoes explode and take out a neighborhood somewhere all around the rim of that, of that bay is... is tremendous tectonic instability and you never know where it's going to be but you look at it and it looks pretty normal right so i think we're sort of like the um the historic equivalent of the bay of naples we're walking around and we're doing pretty good but any moment uh something can blow up that can be you know take down the stock market for example and what you want to do is work real hard to make sure that there isn't a vesuvius that's going to blow the whole thing up that's a really a vivid analogy. I, I like that. Um, and it does make me think of how going to the topic, I'm sure we both uh, agree on completely the, the absolute unpredictability of the future and yeah. something that seems like um, 
disgruntled people online can lead to planes getting crashed into the World Trade Center, or you know, I don't know if that's you know, that's obviously oversimplistic, but but individual actors not, not too much. Yeah, you, and and you'll never see it coming until it happens, and then right. we'll be very good at preventing planes going into buildings and totally unprepared for the next thing. And it was part of what you said, I think, which is um, okay. Lives don't have much meaning. I think you you you, you dropped that that sentence in there at some point, um, or less meaning than before. And I think at the heart of a, of a lot of this is um, the wish to derive meaning. If the, the, as religion recedes, as, as uh, communities recede, as even families to some extent uh, have receded, the, the great sources of meaning that the human race has relied on for the last 10,000 years, um, there is this hunger for something, hunger for something. Um, that, and we need really to try and be understanding about that hunger. When you looked at uh, everyone seemed to be very understanding of Black Lives Matter. You understood what that was about, right? Uh, but I think those crazy looking people <laughs> took over the Capitol, you know I mean? And I'm not, a, I mean, I think every one of them should be prosecuted. And I think every, every one that did, uh, broke any law in there should be, should be have the book thrown at them. But we need to understand why it happened. You know, what is it about these people that you, you can wear a pair of horns and paint yourself blue and think somehow you are, making some political statement. These people are, are, are striving for something. For, they have some hunger for some meaning uh, and they're trying to get it at the wrong place, which is politics. One thing I wonder all the time to kind of connect to an earlier point you made, um, you, you mentioned, okay, so maybe Walter Cronkite, maybe we weren't all unified in our information. It's just that we weren't hearing the voices. And one thing I think about often actually is, is we have this big discussion about meaning. And, and sometimes there's this real nostalgia of like, oh, well, they had meaning in the past. There was the, the one church or, you know, that was in your country um, and all these, these hierarchies. And I often wonder, you know, if I was um, living in, Tudor England and I went uh, were people going to church and they were muttering under their breath like this makes no sense or or you know like did people in the past really have this great sense of meaning and like it was dirty and their living standards were really poor but oh they were happier than us because they had meaning or is it we just didn't know it because we don't hear them I mean if you read the, uh, a, a lot about um even renaissance and even later uh, probably up until the 18th century um whether they had meaning or not, they took for granted a world in which when you died, something um, something in the way of justice happened to you, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, they just took it for granted. It was it, That was the world as they saw it. That was, it might as well have been science that told them that, right? Uh, so yeah, I think, so you can be very anxious. And I think meaning and happiness are not necessarily the same thing. The world can have meaning. Everybody talked about the Cold War, which I am happy to have participated in. Uh, and they always say, well, that was much easier. Those days were more simpler. Uh, you know, you had the good guys and the bad guys. And, and so you just kind of fought the good fight. That was so wrong. People were so confused about what was the right way to fight communism? Should we even fight communism? If they took over a third world country, maybe it was better for that country to have communism instead of capitalism. So. But the meaning was not, so the meaning was not in the simple answers. The meaning was in that struggle, trying to figure it all out, all right? It was something cosmic, something powerful, something important. Everything in life today is very flat and small. And I think people don't, I mean, it is part of our human 
inheritance. That's a, one of the, what separates us from the animals is not tools, it's not our brains. It's that we're symbolic animals. We're symbolic animals. We need more than what we see with our own eyes. We need some, some larger justification for our lives. Uh, and the world today has trouble providing that for us. And since politics is what gets thrown at you all the time uh, by this information environment, then people try to squeeze it out of politics. And they end up very angry because politics can't give it to them. Yeah, the, the spread of politics to, to encompass all meaning, um, I think we could do a whole separate show on. Yeah, um, I, I, I can tell you, um, I... I was born in Cuba, right? And my parents, when I was a young boy, took, took me over to, to the United States, was, did the obligatory year in Miami before I came to Washington. Um, the first thing I noticed about the United States of America way back then, you know, Jack Kennedy era, that's how old I am, um, is nobody talks politics. Cubans, it was like politics, politics. You're my friend, you're my enemy. Here was like, everybody was living their lives. Oh my God, if we can halfway get back to that, uh, whoever, whatever politician can get us back to, don't talk about me anymore. Just do, live your lives. Uh, that, that person's got my vote. Well, one thing that fascinates me is the way that um, we're simultaneously in a postmodern age where meaning is fractured. And yet we have lots of people who in their struggle to substitute politics for meaning uh, are as fanatical as anybody in any cause ever. And they don't seem to recognize that, um, that it's very contingent. I mean, if it was 1805 and they lived in England, uh, the rivalry between the English and the French would be what occupied their minds. And instead it's this, and, and we're not, you know, we obsess over um, some topics rather than others, which doesn't mean those topics aren't important, but that it's, it, it's strange that people are so capable of having an overriding narrative that drives everything they do. I find that confusing in a postmodern age. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I think, I mean, I, I don't want to be glib. I mean, I think these are people, again, that are, are searching for something. And so you search for something and you find a molehill and that's what you got. So you want to make it into a mountain, right? Because molehills are, just don't fill that empty space inside of you. So this is really not a molehill, it's a mountain. When I was in graduate school, people always said, you know, the stake of the fights in, in academia are inversely fierce as to, you know, how, how little matters the, uh, for the outcome, right? Mm -hmm. So I think we have a little bit of that right now is that um, I think the demand for, for meaning and and justice and, and the, the, for struggle against, you know, evil and so forth uh, exceeds the supply. So what is there gets blown up to, to very ferocious and, and very um, absolutist uh, terminology and, and, and emotional stands. Well, I'd like to circle us back to an issue that I find incredibly confusing in my own mind, which I, I mentioned earlier, you know, what is an elite at this point? Mm -hmm. um, so Facebook has a lot of internal dissent uh, as has Google. I, the big one that is on um, very online people's minds these days is the New York Times where employees have uh, shifted the paper's mission to one of, of moral clarity. And we're seeing a lot of 
um, acrimony there right now. And as an aside to the listeners, everyone should check out Martin's recent article uh, he wrote in uh, City Journal on post-journalism. And it, it focuses on what's going on at the New York Times, and I highly recommend it. Um, are these inter-elite struggles? If I work at the New York Times, am I, uh, even if I'm a, a line reporter, um, doesn't that make me an elite? I mean, how, how, how do you categorize these internal debates at um, institutions? Yeah, okay. So to me, an elite is somebody who does inhabit an institution. And sometimes you're high up, sometimes you're way down. But if you are part of that institutional structure, you view the world from a certain perspective, right? Um, I think what's happening in all these places, I think Google also had a, a, a revolt of, 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 the, of the young people. It's a couple of things. I think that that generation, the Zoomer generation uh, that provides all these uprisings inside all these companies, it's an interesting one to study. And I really would like to get my, my mind around it. But I think when you decide the old rules for what it is that we need to talk about are gone. And you, we need to control the information environment because look, Trump, and then look, QAnon. Um, then, then you're gonna get a battle. You know, if once the objective standards, the old handbook of, of uh, you know, Facebook, and you know, Facebook was supposed to be a platform. Once it starts uh, deplatforming people for political reasons, it's not a platform anymore, right? It's deciding what people should should um, should see. So there's going to be a battle, <laughs> you know. Once you get that uh, subjective uh, idea of you should see only what, and then the, what you have in the New York Times is yeah, okay. So once you've thrown out the handbook, we want our definition of what should be viewed or what should be read uh, to be what controls the information agenda. And I think there is, in, in particularly in the New York Times, not in Facebook, uh, a little bit of that academic, you know, the, the, the fight is only uh, as ferocious, you know, more ferocious when the stakes are minimal because the New York Times of 50 years ago would never have gone through this. 50 years ago, if uh, 150 young reporters in the newsroom sent a letter to um, to their management uh, saying you should do this and you should do that and you should cover this and you should cover that, they would have been walked into the chief editor's office and said, Sonny, you do this again yeah. and you're gone, okay? <laughs> uh, because in those days, the New York Times was the New York Times. And I speak as somebody who does not believe that it had a particularly storied past, but it was, I mean, the New York Times 30, 40 years ago set the information agenda. Every other newspaper in America looked at the, at the front page of the New York Times and th those were the stories they chose. Same was true of the evening news. So it was a famous and, and you know, influential uh, source of information. Today it's just one, one voice in, in the babble and in, in the, the absolute shriek of, of voices. Uh, and so the stakes are smaller. Uh, and so you have these young people trying to determine who it is. Once it's not the old way of determining how we set the information agenda, 
then who decides? It's not, not anymore about what. You know, what is the standard? What is the handbook? That's who, right? And the who is either these institutional figures like Dean Bouquet, you know, the, the, the basically the top management of the of the um, of the times that editorially at least tends to be middle-aged or these young people at the newsroom who are, you know, trying to set this very extreme uh, moral standard in everything that uh, gets written by the times. Well, I don't want to get too uh, trapped in a taxonomy, but are we perhaps then heading in a direction where um, sort of it's public all the way down? And I mean, if, if, uh, if I have a uh, hundred thousand Twitter followers, but no institutional connection or, or I write on Substack um, and people are getting their views that way and, and sort of the institutions get just broken down. I, I hate to pick on them, but like the New Republic, where it, it, it now is kind of an also ran, if that just becomes kind of all institutional media, is, is that a, a good way to view it as just sort of information anarchy? Um, well, I think for the short term, yeah. I think it, in some ways, um, like I said, we're in the very early stages. And you need an elite class. I am not a believer that the public can run anything. The public's not interested in running anything. One of the remarkable things about the, 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 the revolt of the public is that it's a revolt, but it's not aiming for power. It doesn't aim to implement programs and it doesn't even have much of a particular ideology. So you have Black Lives Matter basically rampage in, in our urban centers for like a month or two. I'm not really sure what came out of that. And then you have QAnon that actually manages to take over the Capitol building and nobody was more surprised than they were. Uh, and 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 then then it's like, well, now what? They, the worst thing for these groups is when they win because then the question that was, uh, is posed to them, so what do you want? What do you want? And the answer is they don't have a clue, right? So we need elites. We need elites. Uh, I think it just, we need a different elite class. For, it can't be a 20th century model elite class. It can't, the institutions need to be reconfigured. They can't be 20th century model uh, institutions, government. Uh, I mean, think about it. Amazon is a huge bureaucracy, right? Uh, but what you experience is not that. You experience amazingly fast service at really reasonable prices. Think about government. Government is a dispenser of huge numbers of services, but you don't experience that. What you experience is arrogance, delay, and bureaucracy, right? So somehow or another, we need to make government more like Amazon. That's probably facile. I don't want to make, it's like to become a, an internet company, but we are living in the digital age, there is no reason why government has to be so steep, why it can't be flatter and why it can't be faster. Uh, and I think the odds are, I mean, something is going to have to happen. Uh, either we're gonna have continual chaos, as you say, or what I hope is um, we will get an elite class that knows how to reconfigure demo democracy. We have to reconfigure democracy. And it's not gonna be very drastic. It's not a big revolutionary thing. Just making it flatter and faster like the internet. Fingers crossed. And yeah. um, well, in, in closing, uh, a bit of a twist for you. Uh, yeah. We'll put our postmodern hats on. All right. You know, so as you, I'm sure agree, you know, narratives are 
limited and perspectival. And I'm gonna I'm gonna peg you with the term elite because if if you write a popular book, I'm sorry that in my mind you you've made it. Um, and you presented a narrative, and I find that narrative really compelling, and it's centered around information, but it's a narrative. So uh, you and I both have center, uh, um, limited and, and perspectival views. Uh, we have giant blind spots, um, but we're capable of reading other people. So when you look out, you know, your narrative is, is sort of centered around information, and that's how your, um, that, that gives you a good lens on what's going on with modernity. Are there any other narratives that you find compelling or at least interesting and provocative specifically in explaining what's going on with social media platforms and, and information? Well, let's social media, let's say I, I, I find Yuval Levin's um, analysis of the institutions very interesting. I recommend his book. Uh, he basically says that our institutions were once formative. So we, if we were, if we belonged, if we belonged to CBS News, we, we were each of us became some little you know version of Walter Cronkite. You were disciplined, and your character was molded. You were formed by the institutions you were at, and they have now become performative. They're just platforms for elites to essentially self-express and promote their their personal brands, right? So I think it's a really interesting narrative. I think Arnold Kling um, talks about the Dunbar number. Uh, the number number is the, the maximum number that, that of human beings that the average person can deal with, 100 and something, 140. And, and so most of your emotions and most of your the, the drama of your life happens within that Dunbar number. And he says, the internet essentially has blown that away. We now treat people that we have never had any contact with precedence. Uh, movie stars, whatever, as uh, they were part of our Dunbar number. So our emotions are much more deeply engaged because we treat them as we would treat our, you know, our, our boyfriends and girlfriends or our bosses or whatever, the people that live and determine the context and, and, and the, the flavor of our lives. So I think, I think that's another interesting narrative. The interesting, interesting thing is that there isn't a, a reactionary narrative. You always look for what isn't there. Right, and um, you seem to be very adept at history. You know, there isn't an equivalent of Metternich and the Congress of Vienna. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a wonderful book, A World Restored, that Henry Kissinger wrote, uh, trying to put together Europe after the insanity of the French Revolution and the Napoleonic Wars. And in the end, of course, they couldn't quite do it, but they did an amazing. There was a a, a narrative of reaction. This is who a legitimate ruler should be, all right? And when I look around at the elites today trying to, for example, turn Facebook into the front page of the New York Times, I'm thinking, I'm not sensing behind this a coherent theory of, of what the world should look like informationally. It's all very ad hoc and uh, deplatform this and do this little thing. There's, there's, there's no narrative of reaction. I think Joe Biden is a reactionary figure. I think reaction right now is sort of mildly on the rise, um, but doesn't seem to be set on it. So when you see that, um, that he wants to um, put himself up as, as a, you know, a, a uh, good precedent, he will lean on progressive ideas. He doesn't lean on reactionary ideas. 
his, his heart is in the 20th century. He wants to be, um, you know, basically he wants to be there for four years and not have too much trouble. But when he talks, sometimes he sounds more like those kids in the New York Times uh, newsroom. If you read those, those uh, executive orders about equity that he wrote, uh, um, then, then he, so I'm not seeing where that would lead him other than to a mess of trouble. There is no reactionary narrative. And that to me spells that there will be, the reaction will be very temporary. Well, it sure would be fun if 30 years from now we could uh, have a new episode of this podcast and see if meaning just continues to fracture and fracture and fracture. Um, Ross that in the decadent society, I, he put it away. I like that all the ideas are just getting recycled. And if you go on Twitter, it's like Catholic integralism again yes, yeah. and, and Marxism again. And people aren't really, there's there, we have yet to see the new right. overriding narrative and it's just a fracturing and people trying to reconstruct things on Twitter that were built over, you know, something that was built over a thousand years throughout communities and nations, you know, now we're, we're going to do it online with memes and yes. <laughs> it's not going very well. <laughs> well, Martin, it's been a privilege to have you. Thank you so, so much for your time. Um, do you have any future work or events uh, coming up that you'd like to share? No, I mean, I am, uh, I, I am massively overworked and uh, I, um, you know, the question of whether I was an elite or not, that's always fascinating to me. I mean, I always felt that I was when I was in CIA. Uh, for the longest time, I really didn't belong to any organization, but now Mercatus, I'm a visiting scholar at Mercatus, right? I write for the discourse, so I would, I would recommend that as a good place to go to. But um, I used to go there once a week before COVID. So I felt like I was an elite on Wednesdays, you know? <laughs> the rest of the day, I, I was just kind of like, you know, old, old Martin Gurry, Joe Schmo, you know? <laughs> well, you've been, you've been officially stamped an elite on the Tech Policy right. Podcast. Your card is in the mail. I um, like it. I like it. Well, thank you again, Martin. And you're welcome on anytime. Um, that is all from us. I am Corbin Barthold, Internet Policy Counsel at Tech Freedom. This has been the Tech Policy Podcast. Until next time. The Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at Tech Freedom.